It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What do Robert Kennedy, Manuel Noriega, the Watergate burglars, John Hinckley Jr., H. Rap Brown, Frank Serpico, Joe the Animal Barbarossa, and Jimmy the Weasel have in common? My guest today, Louis McKinney. He's a member of the Marshall Special Operations Group. He was deputy chief of the Witness Protection Program, chief of all the fugitive hunters. He was the first marshal assigned to Interpol and twice appointed U.S. Marshal of the Virgin Islands. And eventually he rose through the ranks to become the first African-American director of the United States Marshal Service. He has seen it all. He has done it all. He has bought the T-shirt. This is Chasing Evil. I'm Chris Gotzik. Louis McKinney, Welcome. Thank you. There are so many things that I have wanted to talk to Louis about because his career in the Marshal Service has spanned 30 plus years. Today, all I wanted to do was to bring up some of the more interesting and in some cases infamous characters that Louis McKinney has come into contact with and hear what, what makes these people tick because we've heard about them in the media or seen movies about them. The first guy that we're going to talk about is Jimmy the Weasel. The Weasel, right. Jimmy the Weasel was the uh, acting crime boss of the Los Angeles crime family. And he was arrested in uh, 1977, I believe, and then became an informant and uh, entered the witness protection program. And I neglected to say that at one time, Louis McKinney was the head of the witness protection program. Jimmy the Weasel was a guy, you know, he was a... Kind of a likely guy, really, you know. He told me a lot of things about Hollywood, told me a lot of things about Betty Grable, Marilyn Monroe, and the things that people did, you know, to get ahead, and I don't want to mention on here, but uh, some things. So, uh, and when I came in contact with Jimmy Weasel, he came down to Washington, D.C., and they said, we got to hide this guy someplace, uh, you know, so he, nobody can find him because he's a very uh, important man, as the attorney says. And I uh, say, Louis, you going down to the Virgin Isles to be the chief deputy? I said, yes. I'll be going down soon as well. Uh, we're going to send, since you're the best, of course they tell you that all the time to do something, you know. Since you're the best we got, we're going to make, make sure you keep this guy alive because he's very important to us. I said, okay, I'll take him down to St. Thomas and try to hide him away. So the first thing I got down there, I met him at the airport, and somehow he had a gun with him. I don't know how he got the gun on the plane back in D.C., and I had to take that away from him, you know, and put it in the, in the safe back at the marshal's office in St. Thomas, and had to get him a place to stay. But he was a guy that, like, he was a real friendly guy, you know, and he wanted to talk to all the ladies and all that in the office and tell them, you know. I said, Jimmy, you know, you can't tell these people who you are, you know, because you're a protective witness. He said, oh, I know that I got it, Louis, God, don't worry about it. And uh, he would always uh, come into the office, you know, and I said, you can't come into this office, Jimmy, you know. 
and something came out in the newspaper, a Time magazine, and somehow he got a copy of it. Hey, Lord, have you seen this before? Look at me on the front page. That's why he talked, you know. And he said, man, them motherfuckers, you know, he said, they got me on the front page. I can't believe that. And he said, he started talking, you know, about it. And uh, we had to go to San Francisco, the, uh, the vineyards, because he allegedly killed 13 people. And we had to, you know, dig up the bodies and make sure that he was telling the truth, which he was telling the truth. And he told me, he said, Louis, I don't know why the hell you're so mad at me. I did you guys a favor. That's what he meant. He said, all because I killed, he killed him. He said, I didn't kill anybody, didn't he kill him, so you guys should be pinning the medal on me. I said, Jim, you can't go around killing people, man, you know? And he said, all right, okay, okay. But he was a, he was a, he was a tough guy, though, but he's a very likable guy, believe it or not. Uh-huh. And by living with the son of the gun, you know, I got to know him very well. He got to know me very well, too. Right. By the way, did he not understand the concept of the witness protection program in terms of keeping a low profile? He wanted to stay alive, but he wanted to publicity also. Okay, and, and, and those he, two things are yeah, in conflict yeah, with one yeah. another. And then he started telling me, you know, how he killed these people, you know. He said that uh, he got the word from uh, Mickey Cohen, you know, and to go out and take care of this guy because this guy was getting ready to give us some information on him that wasn't, you know, wasn't, wasn't he said wasn't good. Uh-huh. So he said he sent him out, this guy, in Hollywood, him and another guy, and I forgot the other guy's name. So they put a, a, a rope around this guy's neck. And one guy got on one side, and he got on the other side, and they pulled a rope, and they strangled the guy. And he was saying that uh, that's why you have to take care of these guys, let them know who's boss. And he said, uh, another guy got ahead of himself, you know, and, uh-huh. uh, and he got the word he got hit this guy. So him and his friend, I forgot his name, was in the back seat of the car, and one guy was driving, but the guy when the kill was sitting on the driver's seat side. He said the guy that's supposed to shoot him was sitting next to him, but he got nervous. Skin didn't want to do it. So he had to pull out his gun, shot him in the head six times. He said, and, uh, and he said, told the guy, see, that's how you do it. He says, you know, if you're gonna do something, you gotta do it. You can't. Where he said, can't fuck around. So, right. But he told me all these things, you know. And at first, I thought he just, you know, giving me a bunch of shit, you know, all that. Right. But he was telling the truth because I checked him out, and uh, and I remember he uh, uh, he was telling me one day. He says, uh, Louis, he says, uh, he does a lot of cooking, really he does you know, uh-huh. a lot of food, and he says. Uh, he said, what do you like to eat? I said, well, uh, I don't know. You're some of the Italian food. And he says, uh, you like lasagna? I said, yeah, I like lasagna. He said, I'm going to cook you a meal. You know, you treated me nice. You've been very nice to me. And he said, you could, you could, you know, could be a bad guy, but you're not. You know, I said, well, I, got a ch- I don't have anything against you. I just got to keep you alive. Right. And he said, okay. So he cooked me this big meal. Went out to this place where we had him out in uh, St. Thomas and uh he said he cooked all day, and he made the stuff, you know, by hand. He made meatballs and all kinds of stuff. He said it took him all day because I think you're a very special guy, he says. He called me out and had this on the table. He said, well, sit down and have a seat, and he gave me a knife and fork and all that. Okay. And I said, you're supposed to have these knives, man, or what? <laughs> and uh, and he, uh, he said, well, okay, take a big piece, he said, and let me know whether you like it or not. So I sat there, and I looked at him, he looked at me. And I looked at the lasagna. And I think he knew that I didn't want to, you know, didn't want to try it. He said, give me a little line and give it to him. And he cut off a big piece and started eating it. He said, I'm not going to poison you. That's what you're saying, I'm going to poison you. I said, that was going to my mind, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, so, so how much time did you spend with the weasel? Oh, about a year or so. About a year. Yeah, and he, uh, that was the best lasagna I've ever had, by the way. Oh, so, okay. Very good. And, you know, uh, credit where credit is due. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he was just, uh, you know, and he, I had to take him back to Washington, D.C., you know, to testify and uh but, you know, he just, he got to be a likable guy, you know. You wonder why a guy like that would do what he had to do. But he mm-hmm. said, Lou, I respect you. He said, nobody would harm you. 
I'll let anybody else harm you. That's what's well, nice to know. So right. And uh, but eventually he gets kicked out of the witness protection prison. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Well, how come they kicked him out? Because he didn't do what he's supposed to do. Okay. And, you know, and he's always like I said, he liked notoriety. It's what he really liked. Right. Being, you know, another thing that he told me, and uh, of course it was true. He said he was on a plane going to Atlanta, Georgia, and he's sitting by this lady on the plane. He said they started talking, you know, and he says, uh, he said he was a, uh, his her name was uh, Elsie. I had a sister named Elsie. And he said they started talking. He says, oh, I know this guy, you know, he's a marshal, you know, down in the Virgin Islands. He took good care of me, and he was out of program then. He says, oh, and uh, I just can't think about it. And she said, who? Said Louis McKenna. She says, that's my brother. He said, I be damned, he said. <laughs> and he wanted to buy a lunch. I said, you know, don't let him buy his shit. He was a character, but he told me some things about Hollywood I don't want to go, I don't want to talk about. Okay. Like the women in Hollywood, but uh, he remembered me. A long there, time. Are the, yeah. there are those stories. We're yeah. just gonna we're just gonna jump around. Oh, good, uh, good. I mean, let's go right to Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy. Okay, that's another one. Robert Kennedy. Uh, after John got killed, you know, the Secret Service had to protect him, so right. they asked us to help because they were short of manpower, and we do that a lot because we go through Executive Protective Service down in uh, Flatsy. Mm-hmm. We were trained to say put me out and another guy out to his house in Virginia, to you know his, him and his family. And uh, he was a very nice guy, really nice. The whole family was nice. And we'd sit outside, and they'd bring us inside because it's in the wintertime. They'd feed us, you know, and make food for us and all that. But he had some bad kids there. <laughs> and, you know, and, 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 okay. and, and my fear of snakes, of course, sitting in the living room, he had a big boy constricting a tank in one of them, you know, like a big, huge tank. Uh-huh. He got the damn thing. I had the tank. One of his kids. Yeah, it wanted me to hold it. Of course, I got up real gracefully and got out of there because I went outside. And another incident, uh, uh, my partner was outside by the swimming pool. He pushed me in the swimming pool. And, you know, we didn't know what to do, tell uh, uh, Ethel or what to do because he's a bad kid. And uh, I'm not going to tell you his name because he's a grown man. He's <laughs> a bad kid. And, uh, uh, and so one day we had a big meeting down at the Department of Justice. We had to bring him in and bring his kids in. So I told this, you know, Robert about how bad this guy, his son was. I think he punched himself. We were down at the Department of Justice, and here come Robert Kennedy out the door, his wife, and some other people. So I held a door open for him, and they went past. So the same bad kid was behind. He can <laughs> kick me in the leg. I said, "That's so and so." You know, I couldn't do anything with him. Then, but uh, but he was a the, the Kennedy was very nice. You know, he treats uh-huh. you like a human. You're not like you're just an object. You know, like those other guys do. But he took care of us, and I really did liked him. You oh, know, that's great. John was the same way. You know, he was very nice. But uh, but the kids um, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard it here first. Yeah. Uh, but you also had some experience with Ted Kennedy. Oh, yeah. Ted Kennedy. Cheapo, I call it. Cheapo. <laughs> and he laughed about it. <laughs> we were protecting him, too. And I don't know why we were protecting him, but we were protecting him. At that time, you know, we had our own cars. You know, we had old raggedy cars. And uh-huh. we didn't have a good car like to, like to do now. And uh, Ted said, that car, you guys got it so bad. He said, why don't you go in my car? I said, Okay. And he wanted to go to uh, McDonald's, wanted to get a hamburger. He said, like hamburgers. I said, okay. Ted Kennedy likes Ted his Kennedy McDonald's. Ted Kennedy loved hamburgers, yeah, like okay. McDonald's. So we left D.C., went some, I forgot the place in Maryland, get some uh, McDonald's food. Uh-huh. And his car was worse than our car. He had, a, he had an old Mustang, and you could see the, the uh, pavement when you are sitting in front. I was sitting in front. <laughs> and, you know, he thought that was the greatest thing. But, you know, and he went in and he said, Louis, you know what? I don't have any money. 
I'm not going to eat. I said, well, I don't know. I, I don't have any money either. He's my wallet's home. And I said, well, you're going to eat home too. And then we laughed about it. So I paid for his food, but he never <laughs> paid me back, you know. And, uh, he still owes you for a burger? Still owes me for a burger. Yeah, but he was, they, all those kids were very nice, I'm telling you. They were very nice and very polite. And they didn't look down on you, though. They know we had a job to do. Uh-huh. So they kind of took care of us and helped us out a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, you uh, had an interesting guy that you spent some time with, uh, H-Rap Brown. H-Rap Brown, Brother Rap. Brother Rap. Yeah, he called me brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sent you that picture, didn't I, me and Rap Brown? Yes. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, as you know, he uh, set fire to Cambridge, Maryland. He's protesting, like, you know, the Black Panthers and civil rights and how black people are uh, treated in this country. So he's a big black military, what we call him. And so he got locked up. I think the FBI locked him up, I believe. I'm not sure. So we had to protect him, you know, and make sure that happens to him. And uh, we had to take him down to Alabama for trial down in Alabama. I think it was Alabama. So we picked him up, and we couldn't get him on a regular plane. So we got a plane from DEA with two DEA pilots. And, uh, you know, they were, you know, they were, we had stopped in North Carolina to gas up. And, of course, he and I were talking about things, you know, and he said, brother, I almost hit him so bad, stop calling me brother, because I'm not his brother, you know. And he was saying, you know, because me and him was the only two black people on the plane. Right. The DEA guys were white, so me and him and another guy. And he was saying, you see all these mother uncles here, you know, well, I th- they might try to kill us. I said, why do they want to kill us, you know? He said, well, they flying us down in this little small plane. I think they're trying to kill us, something like that, he said. I said, I know these guys, man. And he kept come, you know, kept uh-huh. talking and talking about, I understand where he's coming from. I said, no, I don't either, because you don't burn things down. I don't burn things. I'm in law enforcement. I don't mistreat anybody. You know, Did he to. have a hard time understanding why a, a black man would yeah, be in why, law yeah, enforcement? Yeah, that's what he understood. How he un- couldn't understand how I could be in law enforcement. The things that law enforcement people do to teach to, to, to us, our people, he says. Uh-huh. That's what I never ex- Well, I did experience some things like that, but I didn't tell him. Right. And uh, so, you know, we had a nice conversation. So the plane, I guess, had dual tanks on the plane, you know, uh-huh. and um, one of them got low, so the DEA guy turned that one off, the engine off, for the other, to turn the other uh, tank on. And, man, he hollered. He said, oh, Jesus, please save me. I know they're going to kill us. He <laughs> jumped up and hollered, you know. They said, we're just changing the damn, you know. Look, if nobody knows when the pilot is switching tanks, switching tanks there yeah. is a moment yeah, where yeah. the plane doesn't feel right at all. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and there's nothing happening. So I could, I could see what that would scare someone. Scared me. Well, it kind of scared me, too, because I didn't know he was going to turn it off. Right, right. And then I know later on, as you probably know, he got uh, he did some time and got out. He got caught robbing a bank up in New York. So he got killed. I think somebody shot and killed him mm. for robbing a bank. But he, you know, he said, uh, you make sure you give me a call and all. Here's my number. And I'm saying, why the hell don't I call him? <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Now, when you were head of WITSEC, you also uh, interviewed... Frank Serpico. 
Frank and, Serpico. And for people who don't remember Frank Serpico, well, first of all, they made a movie uh, starring Al Pacino, but he was really responsible for whistleblowing on the corruption mm-hmm. within the uh, NYPD and really was the catalyst for change and cleaning up the department. And when some of his cohorts found out he was snitching about what was actually going on, he was set up on a, on a drug deal and he was shot in the head. And in fact, there were still uh, fragments of bullets that were left in his brain. Eventually, I think the drug dealer who shot him got uh, convicted of attempted murder. But his life was uh, was clearly in danger, and you had a discussion with him about witness mm-hmm. protection. Well, what he said, first of all, he didn't trust any law enforcement people, you know, because he'd been a policeman up in New York, and, of course, he's, everybody that was corrupt. He's, if you can see, he said they tried to kill me because I was going to testify, you know, uh, for the committee mm-hmm. on the, the corruption and crime at the police. He says not one single police in New York is legit. They're all a bunch of crooks, he said. And he says that's why they tried to, tried to kill him, he says, no. Nah, and here I'm going to give my life. But he said, I don't know you, you know, but you're in law enforcement. He said, I, I, you could be in coups, which police for all I know. I don't know that, he right. said. But anyway, he said, I don't want to die with the hands of police officers, so I understand what you're saying to take care of me, but I don't trust any police officers or any law enforcement. He said, so I decided to go overseas. Of course, you know, he went to Switzerland, and mm-hmm. uh, I think over there. But he was another guy that was very sincere about law enforcement. You know, always want to be a cop. And he talked about different things. And he and I talked. We went to lunch, you know. I bought him lunch and all that. And he was just, uh, and not patting myself on the back, he said, if everybody's like you, I wouldn't have a problem. But then he said, you just... He said, you could be just putting on a face for me, something like that, he said. Right, right. Well, I said, hey, I got a job to do, man. You know, I'm doing my job, and these police officers are doing their job. I'm trying to save your life. He said, well, I don't trust anybody in law enforcement. He said, so no thanks. I don't any part of the witness security program. Right. So another guy that you came into contact with for the witness protection program was Frank Lucas. And <laughs> Frank Lucas was an American drug trafficker who operated mostly in Harlem in the late 60s, early 70s. And there was a movie made about him, and uh, Denzel Washington portrayed Frank Lucas. What was your interaction with Frank Lucas? Well, he, he's another guy. I guess, you know, it's amazing back in those days because if you're the same race, you're supposed to be brother-like. He was talking to me about, you know, because I'm from South Carolina. He's from North Carolina. Uh-huh. And he said, brother, you know how it is down south. I said, yeah. I said, but what you did was wrong, Frank. He said, well, I realize that now because it's killing kids. But he says, uh, if I had to do it over, I wouldn't do it. And he says, uh, I want to apologize to people for what I did. He said, but... Uh, I needed money, didn't have any money, and he met uh, Bubby Johnson, Bubba Johnson. Bumpy Johnson? Bubba Johnson, yeah, right. and we briefly talked to him, too, and he says, uh, he said, I didn't know, I didn't have any idea all that a lot of people like that was dying from my drug until somebody testified in court. Uh, she was crying about her son died from a drug, overdose of drugs, and he saw that. Mm-hmm. He said, that kind of changed his mind, but, uh, you know, all these guys, uh, Chris, believe it or not, they, you know, you're talking to them, they all are very nice and polite. Right. You know, when you're talking, you wouldn't believe they would do anything like that, but they would, you know. Uh-huh. And he said, if I was in the, talking about me, if you were in the same situation, you'd probably do the same. I said, no, I wouldn't. I came from a poor family, you know, son of a sharecropper in South Africa, and back in the days of segregation, but I didn't, I didn't do what you did, you know. He said, I know what I did was wrong, but he said, I'm going to try to do the right thing. And, of course, I met Denzel Washington, too, because he played a part, and he kind of talked to me about Frank Lucas a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but then, as you know, uh, he was in a witness program, then he did some other things, still dealing in drugs. Uh-huh. And he got caught again, so he went to jail. So did you believe anything he told you about feeling no, any remorse? Believe, no, no, I didn't believe that, no. Yeah. <laughs> All the, and you know how he, well, I can tell you this, though. You know how he got drugs back in this country, right? Mm-hmm. He knew a guy over in uh, Vietnam. Right. And they put the coffins, he's dead, so he got killed and brought it back to uh, Dover Air Force Base. 
they had a contact there that you know would, would take the drugs out of coffins, which is a damn bad thing to do for a dead body. That's why I don't have any pity for him at all. And now, while you didn't meet him, interestingly enough, you probably didn't think at any time in your career that you would become a Nazi hunter. Tell us about your search for Yosef Mengele. Well, you know, I had no idea that I had, that I would do something like that. A poor country boy like me from South Africa to get involved in a Nazi war criminals, but. I didn't even know who Joseph Mingler was, to be honest with you, right. for a while. Cause, uh, but we got a call one day uh, down at the Department of Justice, and uh, Simon Wiesenthal. He's the most world-renowned Nazi hunter of all. Yeah, and said he heard that uh, that Joseph Mingler was, you know, angel of death, they call him, right. was still alive. And he said, you guys, Marshalls are still the best future hunters in the world. He said, you guys got to find this guy, uh, prove that he's that he's dead. He heard he might be dead, he said, but he wants you guys to find him, so the Department of Justice. AG called us, so he sent me and two or three other guys, you know, gave us the information that we needed. Uh, but one thing about uh, Joseph Mingle, he was a rich man, came from a rich family. And we went to Berlin and uh, uh, talked to some people, talked to his family. That's what I think is down in San Pablo, Brazil. Mm-hmm. And we did a lot of investigation. So we went down to San Pablo and we met the, the commissioner of police down there. And we checked out this place where he was. But what had happened, he had drowned, was swimming and drowned. And we thought they was trying to give us a run around, so we had to call the forensic down. They, you know, dug up the body, and mm-hmm. it, it was him. And I think he's in some kind of a still in, in Pablo, I believe. Uh, I think he kept his body there. I'm not sure. Right. You're going to tell a story now, and for anybody who considers themselves even a mild conspiracy theorist, you're going to want to pay attention to this story. Louis was involved in one of the most notorious crimes of the of the 70s. One day you get called in by your boss, boss. and told what? Told me to stand by. They have a special assignment for me. All right. I said, it's got a call from the Department of Justice. I need two people. And they said, what we need for you to do is go down to the Watergate, and there's a Holiday Inn right across the street on the top floor. We've got rooms for you there, because that's where your assignment's going to be. And I had no idea what he was talking. He said, we can't tell you anything right now, but we will probably later on. You'll find out. I said, okay. And we stayed around there about 6 or 7 o'clock. And he said, well, okay, uh, you guys can go home now. So we left. And as we went home, you know, about 3 o'clock in the morning, three, I got a call from my boss, the guy that told me, you know, stand by. He said, you see the news? I said, no. He said, check the news. He said, the water got I said, broke into the water. He said, who? And he said, Nixon's people broke into the Watergate. He mm-hmm. said, and I said, you got to be kidding me. And I said, wait a minute. And I said, is that where we're supposed to go? He said, we'll talk about it tomorrow morning. Okay. So let me, let me just get this straight. Yeah. Somebody at the Department of Justice mm-hmm. called somebody at the U.S. Marshal Service mm-hmm. to have you basically be complicit in the Watergate break-in. Right. Big part of it, yeah. And this little tidbit has never been taught. I mean, this is a this is a government conspiracy on mm-hmm. a on a different level. Yeah. You almost un, unwittingly became very involved in it. In fact, I think you were questioned. I was, yeah. I almost went, I could have went to jail for that, not knowing it, you know, because uh, after I said, you know, I got the call that next morning, you know, about three o'clock, so you checked the news. I didn't, so we looked at the news and what happened. So I got scared, then you know. And I didn't think anything about it, so, uh, but the call came from the assistant attorney general. I mean, I know his name, but I'd rather not mention it, but okay. it's okay. And, uh, and so I really got, you know, I really think, I said, my God, I said, that's where we're supposed to be. This other guy's with me, mm-hmm. you know, at the uh, Holiday Inn. And I said, you mean they're going to have us to, to be a lookout for the president? You know, that's what I thought. 
And I said, you know, he said, well, you should you should have said no because I was senior. I said, you know, when your boss tells you something, you're going to do what he tells you to do because right, that's right. my job. Right. So anyway, so getting back to it, they started a big investigation, you know. Uh, they had uh, an investigative uh, committee uh-huh. investigating people that was involved in Watergate. So they called me one uh, one afternoon and said, they want to talk to me. And I said, you know, why do they want to talk to me? Anyway, so I went down to the place, you know, they, they had an office down there. I think it was on K Street someplace, and I forgot the name of the investigative committee. So... I went down, they read me my rights. I really got scared, and I said, what is this all about? He said, you were supposed to, you and the other guy, were supposed to go down to, to a Holiday Inn to be a lookout for the water for the breaking of the Watergate, for, for the Nixon committee. I said, what? And I said, you got to be kidding me. And he said, well, and we talked about it for a long time. You know, he tried to trick me. I'm going to ask you, you knew about this in advance? I said, I knew nothing. I'm a right. civil servant. I did what my boss told me to do. That's right. all I did. So, uh, uh, oh, man, they they went up and down different things. But do you know this person? Do you know this person? I had no idea who they were talking about, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, I shouldn't be cursing on phone. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I, I had no idea who they were talking about. And, right. uh, uh but I was really scared because I thought I was going to jail because, guys, you know, you get 30 years in prison for this. The Watergate scandal is one of the most seminal events of the early 70s, and you're in the middle of it. I didn't right. even know those people. And But anyway, uh, they finally cleared me. They found out that I, right. I was just doing what I was told to do and, you know, had this big investigation. I was really scared, so they gave me some kind of letter. I was exonerated from the Watergate uh-huh. uh, break-in and all that. So I still would like to know who called the attorney general. <laughs> or the assistant attorney general. Uh, that to me, that is what uh, well, you know, I, probably. Uh, well, I think I, I. Well, I was told that it was uh, Gordon Liddy called. Uh huh. Well, that would certainly make sense. Yeah. Very interesting. So I, I'm not sure, but I was told now when right. he gets so. Uh, okay. And after all that so happened, you know, they sent me on. I was on the assignment to take care of these guys. Right. You know? This is this is yeah. amazing. You're like on the one hand, you're supposed to be involved in it. Mm-hmm. They get uh, indicted. Mm-hmm. They're on trial, and now you're on their security. On their security. I thought they were setting me up, really, uh-huh. talking to these guys with John Dean, Chuck Colson, all those guys, you know. And uh, but you know, we we protected those guys. And one thing about uh, Gordon Lid, he was a real tough guy. After Asian, you know, we'd have to mm-hmm. shoot him because he's a big, strong guy. <laughs> Really tough guy. Right. And But he was the nicest guy. We'd go pick him up out of the jail. He put his hands up right away. He searched him all around him. He was very, you know, corporate. So we didn't have any problem out him. And and I felt kind of sorry for John Dean because he's the only guy that told the truth and he's the only guy that went to jail. But then getting back to all those guys like Chuck Colson, Gordon Liddy, uh, several of those guys, we couldn't keep him in jail. So we had to uh, find a place to put him. So uh, we talked to the uh, MPs at Fort Meade, mm-hmm. and they told us we could, you know, we could use this barracks, uh, military barracks. So we paid money to have a contract come and do it like a jail. We kept all the guys there, you know, and uh, and you know we got to be like friends, like you know, and uh, right. talking to the guys. And uh, you know, the, one guy was a cook; he used to cook a lot of food for us. But then again, a little bit eating food, but it's right. okay. And it was just a, like a family thing, and. Uh, and I remember we had to, I had to go down to Eglin Air Force Base to get uh, Chuck Colson. Mm-hmm. And he wanted a drink of whiskey so bad. He said, Lou, I haven't had a drink in two years. He said, could you please give me a gin and tonic? And I, didn't, I was a little leery, but I didn't get it for him. I said, no, I'd be violating. He's yeah. a prison, federal prisoner. Right. Did, did they say anything noteworthy while you spent time with them as to why they did it? or? He said they thought they was doing it. He said, what would you do if you worked for the president and they told you to do this and do that? 
Mm-hmm. I said, well, I probably didn't say anything, but I draw the line. I ain't going to jail for nobody, you know. Right. And uh, But anyway, they they talked about it, you know, and what happened. And they, one guy said that uh, uh, they kind of tricked him in doing what he's supposed to do. But it was not all. They knew what they were doing. Right. They just want to get, uh, you know, they didn't want the other guy to get in office, the president. So, but, you know, we took care of these guys and getting back to Chuck Colson again. And uh, he said that, uh, he said, well, you treated me nice. You took care of me and you let me see my wife, which I did, you know. I didn't let him get together, though. I let him talk to him, hug him, right, kiss him. Right, right. So he got back, and he sent me a, I still have him to this day, a presidential cuff length, 18 karat gold. And I asked, you know, I had to ask the boss, could I keep him? You know, I was on the job. He can go and keep him. So I don't wear him, but I got him at home right, right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Taking a different turn from the Watergate burglars, but this was earlier in your career, you had the uh, unenviable position of uh, guarding Joe the Animal Barbarossa. Mm-hmm. who had admitted to at least 20 murders. What kind of guy was he, and how how did you feel about guarding somebody who had committed 20 murders? Well, you know, that's a good question. Uh, but, you know, you get used to it, believe it or not. It's so many people we've guarded, they kill people. <laughs> you get okay. used to it. And it didn't kind of bother me at all. I had a job to do, of course. You know, we had the weapons. He didn't. But he was, like I said, he was a, they all what they all treated us nice for some reason or other. We were not the enemy. We were just protecting guys. Right. We were not the enemy. So they took care of us, and the guy said, I'm glad you marshals are, you know, are, are taking care of us instead of police. He said, y'all treat us like we're human beings, you know, because we had a job to do. But he would, I'd hate for him to, you know, get riled up against me or something, because he was real. He was a, they called him an animal. That's what he was. He cursed all the time. He did all these crazy things. But he's he a did. boxer. He was built like oh, yeah. a boxer. He was, yeah. But he did what we told him to do. But he left witness protection. Yeah, he left, went to San Francisco, and it's a person uh, from Rhode Island I gave it up. Mm-hmm. They told him who he was, and they shot him, as you know, with a shotgun yeah. in San Francisco. As he was walking to his car, they shot right. him four times mm-hmm. at close range, and that was it for Joe the Animal. Yeah. Well, and, you know what, uh, Chris, and when I wrote this book, a lot of stuff is in the book. Uh, yeah. I had to go down and give it to the Department of Justice and the Marshal Service, you know, legal. And they went over this book, and they kept for three months. And they said, Louis, some of this stuff is not true, is it? I said, yeah. And he said, uh, Frank Lucas wasn't in the witness program. I said, he was. I interviewed the guy. Then he came back and said, oh, yeah, you're right. A name and a story that's been portrayed in countless uh, television shows and some films, Enrique Kiki Camarena was an undercover DEA operative who had infiltrated a Mexican drug cartel. He was discovered by the cartel, and they crossed a line by brutally torturing and murdering him in Mexico. Mm Mm-hmm. And this was a guy that the U.S. was going to get. You were involved in getting Kiki Camarino's killer, mm-hmm. Rene Verdugo. Yeah. And he was a Mexican drug lord. Right. And no one had any success in getting him from Mexico into the U.S. Well, DEA came to us about this guy, you know. Uh, and I said, we got to catch this guy because what he did to one of our own, we can't let him go. Mm-hmm. He said, by all means... You guys got to find this guy. He said, you guys are good future hunters. He said, you got to capture this guy. And I don't care what you do. You got to get this guy. So first of all, we went down to Mexico City. And John Gavin was uh, appointed by Regan as uh, the ambassador to Mexico. He helped us out a lot. So we talked to some police uh, official. I forgot his name right now. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, i tell you what he said. If you guys, he said, if you guys uh, want to you know, grease my palm, that's what he said, I can give you some good information. 
So we said, what are you talking about? And of course, we had John Gavin as a witness, you know, and, um, and he says, uh, I can tell you where this guy's you're looking for. I said, well, we need to know that, you know. And so um, I had a DEA guy, two DEA guys, but I was only marshal there, and three DEA guys, a couple of them still alive. And anyway, so we talked about it, and I said, well, what do you, what, what, what do you need to do? He says, uh, he said, let me get back to you. He said, can you guys afford $40,000? And I said, well, we can't. The marshals don't have that kind of money, <laughs> all right? But DEA can. Okay, that's so, DEA money. Yeah, DEA money. So I went to Dave Westright. He's a friend of mine. He's a, like the associate director for DEA. He said, okay, Louis, I'll give you the money. He said, I need a receipt. I said, how do you want to get a receipt from a crook? But anyway, he kind of laughed by it. So we took the $40,000 down there and got with John Gavin again, the ambassador. And we met this guy because... I forgot his name. Gave him mm-hmm. the money. Let me back up. They brutally murdered, really, really brutally murdered the guy. Uh-huh. And and what happened? They buried the guy. They buried him like a, a I guess about a, well, maybe one feet under the sand because his body was still there. He kind of tear it. But anyway, he told us he said about the body, and he says, "Uh, oh, you got the money." So I will tell you what. Instead of you guys getting really involved, he says, "Uh, if you go on the border, and I've got the name of the town already on the border there." He says, "Uh, it's such such a." time you know in the afternoon he says uh, you'll get you'll get a surprise we gave him forty thousand dollars so before you tell the rest of the story i looked into uh one of the court documents from Rene verdugo versus the united states mm-hmm. and in it it says in january 1986 mexican police officers after discussions with the united states marshals apprehended verdugo in mexico and transported him to the united states border station in calaxico there, United States Marshals arrested respondent and eventually moved him to a correctional center in San Diego, California. You're here to say that's not what happened. Well, he was arrested, but that's not what happened, all right? <laughs> okay. Well, when they got, uh, they got uh, Rene Verdugo, they got him, so we gave him the money, and they said, well, you guys, if you be at this town, I forgot you just mentioned. Plaxico. it's such, such a time, you'll have your... You'll have your, your prize or something like that he said I forgot mm-hmm. so with that like you told us to me and a couple of guys and we were on the border there and we saw this man tied up naked no clothes on tied up to a tree right on the border and I said wait a minute let's check this kept this guy and you know see what's wrong with him so we checked the guy and it was Rene Verdugo and so we of course they did what they had to do so we you know untied him took him down and we had to go to court the next morning you know and talk to the judge and let him know we got the guy so he said, how did you guys get this guy in the first place? He said, we've been trying to lock this guy. Well, he said, they've been trying to lock this guy for a long time. And how did you guys? And I said, well, Judge, I tell you, we were just driving down the road, you know, and we looked up and saw this body tied to a tree, you know, being good. So we don't stop and help the guy, you know, see what happened to him. And say, lo and behold, that was Rene Verdugo, the guy we were looking for. He said, take a break. He said, Marshall, step up here in a minute. He said, who the fuck you think you kid? <laughs> Anyway, so <laughs> they kept they kept him there. So, uh-huh. uh, but I met his family too. Uh, Keith Kimberly's family came uh-huh. back to DC, right. and we talked about it. You know, his wife and kids, and oh, nice. and she appreciated what we did and all right. that. So, uh, it, it was a uh, as another good case that we did here. Yeah, you know, one thing about the marshal, you know, we always get out of a man. You know, we might get, but we'll get him eventually because mm-hmm. we never give up. Mm-hmm. Never. You were the first marshal assigned to Interpol. Mm-hmm. And while you were gallivanting about in Cannes, <laughs> yeah. in France, uh, you met a, a particular man that you would actually supervise his extradition some years later, Mr. Uh, Noriega. Noriega, yeah. I met him. We were in Interpol, you know, of course, and I was in. He was there from uh, uh, Panama. Right. And, you know, we in the same room talking about different things. We'd go out at night, you know, and have a drink. And he always, he liked, you know, a lot of... Uh, 
Spanish food, so, you know, we'd go out and have food, and we'd talk and joke around and all that, and and I just thought it was something funny about that guy in the first place. You know, he was part of Interpol, so we had to treat him like he was, because he's a policeman from uh, Panama. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lord, I didn't know that later on that we had to lock this guy up. So we had to bring him back to the States, and uh, of course, I didn't want to go. I was supposed to go and bring him back, but I didn't want to go. But two guys went, and I supervised the uh, bringing him back, so and I met him when he came back. He said, hey, Louis, how you doing? I said, I'm doing a little better than you are, you know, and all that. <laughs> he said, damn, can you believe this? I said, believe what? He said, they think I'm a crook. I said, well, <laughs> in a way. Right. You had spent a lot of time oh, with him. a lot of time with him, yeah. In I, France. I, 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 yeah, 10 and, days with him. And what did you What did you learn? I mean, what kind of guy was he? Just what did, a what did normal you learn? guy. That's why you got to watch the normal guys, you know. The uh, guys that think they're bad and all that, they're not really bad. The guys that's quiet and normal, that's the ones you got to watch. So you spent 10 days with Noriega. And you have absolutely no idea that he's a major drug, drug deal. No idea. No idea. And no. he doesn't say anything that would, you know, make your spidey senses no. tingle or anything like that. Just a good police officer. That, you know, that's what he said. He was pretty good, yeah. So this was then completely surprising to you. Oh, I was totally shocked, yeah. I should got to be kidding. Is that the same guy? I got to look at him, you know, and uh, it was the same guy. You're sitting there for 10 days and no idea. No idea. You know, I think the military got involved, too, uh, getting, you know, locking him up. Yep. Down in Panama. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Another guy you spent a lot of time with was John Hinckley Jr., who famously shot Ronald Reagan in an effort to impress Jodie Foster. Now, you were with Hinckley for over a year? Almost a year, right. There were a lot of things that happened, and obviously everybody wants to know why and if you believed his obsession uh, with Jodie Foster, was he working with anybody else, which is always a question about presidential assassins. How did he strike you? Well, he looked normal when I first met him, Aaron. I first met him uh, 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 here in D.C., believe it or not. And, of course, we took him down to uh, Fort Butner, federal prison Fort Butner, because uh-huh. he can go through this. a good psychologist there to make sure he's okay. And he was there for a while, so they said, you know, uh, he's okay, so you guys can take him out. And they want to put him in the witness security program. I don't know who wanted to kill him, you know. So they said, we're going to put this guy in the witness security program. And, of course, they came to me again, you know. Well, Louis, you know, you've been in the program a long time, and you're one of the best, and that's what they tell you when you do something, you know. <laughs> you're one of the best guys we got, and they know the program inside and out. But anyway, I went down there, pick him up, me and another guy, and we were supposed to come back to uh, Quantico. Right. And nobody's supposed to be around because nobody's supposed to know where he is. But uh, and we didn't tell a soul, didn't tell anybody. So we got a Marine helicopter, took us down. We picked him up and brought him back. And, uh, of course, he didn't say a whole lot then and uh, brought him back. And we got off the plane at Quantico and had some marshals to meet us at and take him to a, a prison in Quantico, you know, so he'd be by himself. Mm-hmm. And, Lord, the next morning, and I can show you, I was on the front page of the Washington Post. And we tried to figure out how in the hell those newsmen you got in and got that picture of me and Hinkley getting off the plane. That's in my book, I said, right, yeah. in the Washington Post. I said, I have no idea. I mean, I was doing my job, did what you told me to do, brought him back to Quantico. They said, well, you have to stay with this guy for a while. And I'd take him back and forth to the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. He went there practically every day. And he got, you know, we got, said, well, we got to put him someplace else because the Marines got sick and tired of the press coming down to their base, you know, mm-hmm. and trying to interview this guy because they knew where he was after Washington Post. So we talked to Fort Meade, and we took him down to Fort Meade. They said, we've got a nice place you can keep him. So it's pretty good down there. And uh, and and uh, my boss told me, Mr. Hall was the director there, and he said, Louis, he says, he said, you're one of my best 
better people or something like that, he said. And he says, I'm going to put you on this detail. He said, if anything happens to this guy, I'm going to lose my job. He said, and my first official act is to fire you. Oh, shit. <laughs> I'm supposed to be the best, you know. <laughs> I'm going to come to But the just best. in case you're not the best. Not the best, yeah. Just to let you know job. what's in he store. Said, he said, no, no, he said, take, he said, my last official act is to fire you. Right, right. <laughs> okay, so I go down to Fort Meade, and, you know, and talk to Hinckley a lot. You know, he and I, you know, he just, and one thing about Hinckley, you know, I thought there was something wrong with him, you know, but he's not really crazy. He's a very intelligent guy. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about a lot of things, you know, and, and he keep telling me about uh, uh, Julie Foster, you know, how she's in love with him. He loves her. And they, he, do, you, do you think he, genuine, he genuinely, in his heart of hearts, if he took a lie detector test, mm-hmm. he would pass the lie detector test on whether or not he thinks Jodie Foster oh, yeah, is in yeah. love he with him? Believed he, it. He he believed it. He believed it. Yeah, he believed in that. Yeah. Jodie Foster he had, had me believing in it. So we interviewed Julie Foster, you know, and she didn't know who the guy was. But anyway, uh, uh, you know, that's all they talk about, Julie Foster. He said, we're going to get married. He want to get out of this mess I'm in right now. We're going to get married, and we're going to go this place, that place. You know, he said, I ain't got to worry about money because his family was rich. You know, he came from a rich family. Uh-huh. And uh, he talked about it all the time. So uh, we, I said, well, we have to do something about this. So I talked to the U.S. Attorney in D.C., and we, he said, well, we need to go out and talk to Jody Foster. So we set it up. And when I talked to Jody Foster, she had, she thought I was crazy. You know, she said, who the hell is that? I don't know who that is, you know. And, uh, I don't even know the guy. I said, well, he got a shot at Reagan. Oh, that guy. I don't even know him. They haven't even met him. I never heard him until, you know, it was in the paper that he tried to assassinate the president. Right. So, and I believe her. She didn't. Right. Didn't know the guy. Well, apparently he had actually gone to Yale and tried to register for classes with he, her, right? He, exactly right. That's what he did. Yeah, you're right. But she had no idea who he was. He so, just had a, had a fascination for her, you know. Right. About Jody, of course. Did he mention how did he develop why Jodie Foster? Like, how did that well, he said they were, he said they were in class together, and I don't know whether that's true or not. Uh-huh. But in class together. Okay. She had no idea who I was talking about. She said, are you sure you got the right person? But anyway, and the U.S. Attorney said, that's okay. We know he doesn't know. You right. don't know us. So anyway, getting back to him. When you spoke to Jodie Foster and she says, look, I don't know who he is, did you mention that to John Hinckley? Yeah. And what did he say? Oh, he said, no, she's lying, he says. She's in love with me. Look, I'm in love with her. He believed that. He discounted you that quickly. Yeah, yeah, he believed that. It didn't cause him to pause and go, hmm. No, no, he believed that. He believed that. And, you know, like I said, he wasn't, wasn't that bad guy, you know, but he wasn't, I want to say that he, I don't think it was that... He wasn't normal, you know. Right. But he wasn't a bad guy. Right. A lot of things he remembered, really. Why did he think that trying to assassinate Reagan would impress her? To make him look like he was a hero. Because a lot of people didn't like Reagan, so he was going to do something to take care of Reagan. And that way that she would see that he's a, oh, what word I want to say, you know, like a, like a hero that's going to save the world. Okay. And that she would, you know, say, oh, yeah, this guy's okay, so... You know, maybe we can get together because he wants to, you know, do something to the world or something like that. Right. It was, a, it was a big, bold action. Yeah, action, yeah. And, and he did that to impress her, you know, right. that he's a all right guy. Right, right. That's what he told me. So, and I believe that after talking to him a lot. And, uh, but getting back to him down in, down in uh, uh, Fort Meade, uh, we put him down, you know, sent him down. Took him down to Fort Meade and put him in a nice cell. And we had deputies down in the garden, you know, around the clock. And. So I was home one Sunday watching the Redskin football play football. Uh-huh. You know, this Redskin was losing anyway, and uh, <laughs> I got this phone call. They said, "Hey, Paul." I says, "What?" Hinkley hung himself. I dropped everything. She got to be shitting me. I said, "That goes my job." 
You know, that's the first thing I said. They said, he's hung himself, and they said, he's dead. I said, I got to get down there. So they sent a helicopter to pick me up in my backyard. People thought I was crazy in where I live, you know. Damn right. helicopter landed right and picked me up and took me down there. And luckily, as a deputy that was went around, they couldn't. Well, what he did, he put paper in the in the lock in the cell block door so you couldn't unlock it. He uh-huh. stuck paper there so you couldn't get in there. He wanted to die. But one of the smart deputies went outside and went around to the cell block window and cut him down. And what, did, what did he hang himself with? Uh, he had some. He had some cloth. I don't know where he got the cloth from. Uh-huh. But he hung himself with the cloth, and he was about to die. You know, they brought him back to life, and um, and, and he was uh, cautionally. And his, his uh, defense attorney said that you know you can't take this guy to trial now because it affects his memory. He tried to hang himself, and you know he, he won't recognize anything. You know, make, you know how they do to try to save. Right. Him. So they're saying his memory is completely completely. Yeah, he wouldn't know. He wouldn't know what you're talking about. Right. So uh, he can't remember anything. So the smart assistant U.S. said, "Wait a minute." He said, Lou had been with this guy by the year, and let's see if he remembered him. He's in the hospital, you know. So I walked in there, you know. He said, hey, Louis, what are you doing here? I said, I come to get you. I said, shit, ain't nothing wrong with him. He's going to cry. <laughs> and I am not an expert mm-hmm. on what insane means, mm-hmm. but on the one hand, he was completely delusional about mm-hmm. his relationship with Jodie Foster. On the other hand, you spent a lot of time talking to him and seemed like had very normal conversations. So the question remains, in, in your eyes, do you think he was insane? No, I don't think he was insane, no. He had some issues that he wasn't insane because he knew too much, you know. He remembered a lot of things. You know, he was a very smart guy, really, but he was not insane. He could tell you different things, you know, like what happened and all that. He remembered. But he just had this thing about Jody Foster, which just messed up his mind, you know, because he said, if I go and kill the president, I'm going to be a hero in her eyes. Right. Then she'll want to marry me. Right. But he had this affection for Jodie Foster for some reason. But he said that he first met her in school. Now, I didn't know that. Right. But he said he first met her in school. And the fact that that relationship was completely non-existent. And I'm, and I'm torn mm-hmm. because on, on the one hand, to have such an extraordinary break from reality, mm-hmm. uh, not only in terms of your relationship with Jodie Foster, but also thinking that trying to assassinate the president is going to get you in her good graces. Right. Uh, that to me is an insane thought. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to go with you because I don't yeah, know. I don't I'm, think I'm insane, torn. Though. He knew too much. You know, knew a lot of things. He got a good memory. He had a good memory. He knew too much, and he talked very sensible, really. Uh-huh. But he had this delusion about Jodie Foster, and of course, I'm sure that happens a lot to other people. But uh, he was in love with Jodie Foster. He said he saw her in class, mm-hmm. and he fell in love with her right away. And he said that. Uh, uh, she kind of smiled at him, and that made him feel good and all that. But she said, I never saw the guy. I don't remember at all. Right. And I said to him, I said, why would she want to smile at him in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> so now he's out. Do you think that he's a danger to society? I don't think so, no. No? No, I don't think so. Did you think he was a danger to society back then? No. No. It was this one yeah. isolated and matter of fact, I don't know why we had him in the witness security program, first of all. I, who's going to try to kill him anyway? You know, who's going to kill him, of all people? Louis, uh, this was as fun as I thought it was going to well, be. I'll be honest. This I hope is it great. Out. I mean, you know, everything I'm telling you is true. So I, just, I, I know it is, and it is in your book, yeah. and it is a good book. It yeah. is an entertaining book, Glad you and, like it, and yeah. I enjoyed it, and the title is... One Marshal's Badge. One Marshal's Badge by, by Louis McKinney. Louis, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. If you could help us spread the word about Chasing Evil, we would really appreciate it. Leave a glowing review. Give us a five-star rating if you feel that way. 
Tell your friends, follow us on social media, and subscribe to the podcast. And finally, Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshal Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the United States Marshal Service. Stay safe, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.